Hi, this is Sam Manicum, adventurer, author and presenter. I'm here with Andy Dukes. Welcome to Ride and Talk, the BMW Motorrad podcast. Greetings BMW Motorrad fans, Andy Dukes here and welcome to Ride and Talk. Have we got something special for you today? Not many of us can say we're truly free spirits, but adventurer and author Sam Manicom certainly falls into that category. He's been travelling pretty much since he was 16 years old, starting out on his bicycle. He subsequently travelled far and wide using various forms of transport, including buses, sailboats and trains, and he's also hiked and hitchhiked in many parts of the world. Wanting to travel in a completely different way, Sam learned to ride a motorcycle. Within three months of throwing his leg over a bike, he set out on an R80GS to travel the length of Africa, but when he got to the Cape, he didn't want his journey to end. So he just kept going. This planned one-year trip turned into an eight-year, 200,000-miles odyssey across 55 countries. Since he returned from this epic trip, he's written four acclaimed motorcycle travel books, which take the reader across the six continents which made up his journey around the world. Sam now works full-time in the world of adventure travel, and his ambition in life is to encourage others to explore and learn about the world and themselves. He says that if he can do it, anyone can. So have a listen to this special podcast that we recorded together over the line during the lockdown and be inspired to chase your own motorcycling dreams. Okay, welcome Sam Manicom. It's great to finally have you on Ride and Talk. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Andy. It's great to be in touch again. Yeah, well, I've uh, already introduced you so people know about all of the things you've done. But I wanted to just start by talking about the concept of actually starting an adventure ride people still think you have to be an expert rider or a seasoned traveler to do a big overland adventure but actually you just have to take the decision to go don't you well yeah of course that's the the first stage and it's often the hardest because you know when you think about doing something like this you've got so many doubts and most of those i think surround um whether your own abilities are going to be up for it but um, in the end, the keys are really down to the freedom from responsibility and, of course, the freedom from debt. Now, it does help to be a good rider. But I mean, I'd got three months' experience on a motorcycle the day that I got to the edge of the Sahara. So you don't have to be an experienced motorcyclist. You just travel slower. And what you do need is curiosity and a, a real determination not to be beaten and I think if you can combine that with optimism and a sense of humour and respect, well, then actually those are, yeah, those are just going to stand you in really good stead for everything that you're going to do. And common sense, of course, is really important. And it's one of those senses that we joke about not existing really anymore. But the reality is, if it seems like a, a really bad idea, then it probably is. And <laughs> Curiosity, that's a, that's a big word and it's a great word as well. And uh, curiosity about the world around you. And obviously you had that because you did many other types of travels before you found two wheels, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my first solo trip was when I was 16 years old. I'd uh, bought myself a bicycle, having done a paper round and all sorts of odd jobs and things like this. And this was my first ever brand new bicycle. And I was standing looking at it and this is gleaming blue and black rally bicycle three speed and i was so proud of that because i'd never had speed speeds before it was just me and um i was looking at it and thinking well, what are you going to do just ride it to school and slowly the idea dawned on me that actually i could go further afield on this thing school holidays were coming up so 
I borrowed a page out of my school atlas and set off to ride into into Europe. And um, that was just such a, an eye-opening trip for me because uh, a lot of life-changing moments happened on that. And one of the key ones, you know, was um, suddenly realising that having destinations is a great thing, but it's everything that happens on the way to the destinations that's the most important thing. So I suppose doing that journey by bicycle first uh, was a really good way to kick off solo travel. Now, you grew up in Africa, I believe. I lived there until I was 10 years old. And what a fantastic place to, to, to grow up as a kid. You know, running around wearing shorts and barefoot and um, just going all sorts of places. Um, a lot of which my parents told me not to go to. But when you're that age, well, you're kind of just stretching boundaries and exploring, aren't you? But yeah, it was wonderful. And that actually was one of the reasons why I chose to go to Africa. Right, because you, you know, even you didn't actually set off to ride around the world originally. It it was it started with Africa and then just kind of happened that way. Yeah, I chose Africa because, you know, sometimes when you're sitting down and you're thinking about your childhood, and you get a smell that comes into your mind or a sound, and I was sitting thinking about Africa and my childhood and. How things smell just after when the first big rains happen after you've had you know the dry season and the sound of laughter. It's a very particular sound in Africa, and the, all of those sorts of things. And it started to occur to me. I wonder whether my childhood memories are true, and that was what's kicked me off with the idea of going uh, through Africa on a motorcycle because I wanted to see if those memories were real. Then, when you finally got to the southernmost tip of Africa after you know that being at the being at the you know top of the Sahara three months after having passed your test. You have just given me this wonderful tingle, you know, when all of your skin just buzzes and the hair on your arm stands up. I will never forget that moment. It was a real, this is me. I did it. I'm here. I've ridden the length of this con continent. I had no experience. I had no idea if I was going to be able to make it. And there I am. I'm, I'm at the join between the Indian Ocean and the, and the Atlantic. And yeah, what a buzzy feeling that was. I mean, all right, I did have a broken arm and a bunch of bust ribs at the moment, so there was a tad of pain to go with it. But um, th there was also this sensation of uh, what's happening next, because by that time I decided that I wasn't going to go home. I was going to go to Australia. And during the last couple of months of the, the journey down through Africa, I kept on thinking, is there a good reason to go home? Well, actually, no, I couldn't think of one. Is there a good reason to keep traveling? Hell yes, absolutely. There were stacks of them. So I'd, I'd made the decision to head across to Australia. And um, so there was, um, the, the, the moments there was tinged with this nervous, excited feeling that you get. So that initial one-year adventure turned into an eight-year, 200,000 miles journey through more than 50 countries. But you mentioned not wanting to go home. Is home for you wherever you lay your hat or your helmet in this case? It is. Uh, I moved around a lot as a kid with my parents, and then I've moved around a lot either because I've been traveling or with work. And it's, one of the things that I've learned is that your home is where um, your family are or your partner is and where your motorcycle is, of course. Speaking of motorcycles, what made you choose that R80GS in the first place? <laughs> um, I was sitting in the pub. I, I, I literally was just about to take my test on the 125. I'd been riding a motorcycle for five and a half weeks. And I was looking at what on 
earth I was going to do the trip down through Africa with. And I, I was in the pub with my mates and we had magazines all over the table and we were just looking at um, what the different magazines were saying were good overlanding bikes. And actually, you know, there weren't that many uh, motorcycles where they were even mentioning overlanding or adventure riding. It was, it was touring, that sort of thing. And um, I was just really getting more and more confused. None of my mates were motorcyclists. And so you can imagine the wisecrack comments that I was getting from mm. them. I mean, they were all cracked up laughing that I was planning to ride through Africa anyway. And I guess that we were being a little bit on the noisy side because, of course, beer was flowing. And they thought what I was doing was completely daft. And there were a couple of guys on a, a table next door to us. And they were earwigging on the conversation. And after we'd been sort of rattling away and bouncing ideas and wisecracking for about an hour, one of them leant across and said, Sam, I know Africa. You need to make up your mind because you've got the Sahara to cross and you need to get cracking. What bike are you going to do, do it on? Make up your mind. And I said to him, God, you know, I don't know. I mean, look at these bikes. This blue one looks quite nice. And he says, rolled his eyeballs and said, oh, forget that. Take an R80GS. It's bulletproof. His friends then leant round and looked at me with a very wry expression on his face and said, yeah, it's blooming idiot-proof and all. And so that was why I ended up in R80GS, because it was bulletproof and idiot-proof. That sounded like what I needed. You see, it's always worth going to the pub, isn't it? You never know who you might bump into. So tell me about that bike now. Tell me... Tell me if it's a she, what, what sort of condition she's in, the battle scars. Tell me how many miles has, has been gone under those wheels. I, I saw a post from you recently about all the different modifications that you'd made to it, all the different parts that you'd put on it. Uh, some of them have sort of organically just appeared. Tell me about your relationship with this GS. Gosh, you know, I was uh, doing presenting a book signing at the London Motorcycle Show and I heard somebody standing with his mate and um, looking at uh, at my bike, and his comment was, "Hmm, it's not the prettiest bike, is she?" And and I just thought, "Hang on a minute! Every single one of those dings and scrapes tells a story." And yeah, okay, she's not pristine, but I think she's gorgeous because of all of the stories that go with um, the dents and the scrapes. So anyway, she's um, a 1992 R80GS, and she's called Livy. And uh, when I was coming down through Kenya, so halfway down um, the length of Africa, I'd realised that I was talking to my motorcycle and it was talking to me. As in, well, you know, I wasn't riding with anybody else. And so she was who I had to talk to. And she was talking to me as in, um, yeah, that oil change. I feel great. And, oh, I like this road surface. This is brilliant fun. And just how an engine sounds and how a bike feels. And she started to develop a bit of a personality. Um, she because she just felt like a she and I thought well you can't keep talking to the bike as the bike you've got to give her a name and I went through all sorts of different names uh, and started then to think about well what does this bike give you maybe that will help you find a name and I went through various variations including free and I thought now that sounds too hippie-ish and I came across liberty and I thought yeah that's what she's giving me she's giving me absolute liberty and that got shorted to Libby, because Liberty's too uh, too pompous. So yeah, she became Libby. Um, she has been an absolute gem of a bike. I had no idea what I was doing when I was setting the bike up to do this trip. So I literally just followed common sense. I'm going to need fuel because I'm going to have some big distances to go between possible fill-ups. 
So I put a, a 43 litre fuel tank on and some extra, uh, an extra fuel tank on the side and water on the other side. I put a bash plate on, so I thought you're going to bottom out sooner or later. I put uh, WP shock and progressive fork springs on because it made sense that, you know, if I'm going to put all that, all that weight with the fuel up front, the fork springs that the bike comes with aren't going to be designed to deal with that weight. Sure. Um, I then started thinking about um, what I was going to do about the other luggage. And it was in my mind that I would have to have it as much as possible locked away and secure because of sticky fingers. So I, I made a, a rack which went over the pillion seat and uh, put a top box on that. But it's just logical that the more I hung off the back end of the bike, the more unstable it would be. It just seemed to be logical. I did make a mistake with that, though, in that I didn't make the rack strong enough, so this top box um, flexed a lot on the dirt road. But, um, yeah, well, you learn, don't you? I put compression plates on the cylinder heads because I'd been warned about something called pinking that came from low-octane fuel. I had no idea what they were talking about, but if that's what the advice was, okay, I'll do that. And I set off with a stack of spares. It was almost a spare motorcycle. But as far as my knowledge was concerned with the bike, I'd, I had very small amount of knowledge. Um, give me a piece of wood and I'll make you something nice. But as far as mechanical engineering is concerned, it's the dark arts as far as I'm concerned. But that's that, uh, yeah. that's part of the um, adventure, isn't it? You, you being being frightened that anything and everything could go wrong, but, but over time realizing that there's always a solution. There's always someone who can help you. And, you know, I, I, re I really like the fact that I think everyone who's ever set off on, on a big journey has set off with a completely overladen motorcycle with all sorts of things that at the time of packing they think are, are absolutely vital to the trip, but inevitably get ditched somewhere or given away to someone who can make more use of them than you can. Definitely. And that's exactly what happened with a lot of my spares. Some of them, eight years later, I was still actually carrying because I never actually needed them and never found anybody to give them away to. But they seemed logical uh, to carry. And the mechanical knowledge that I did have was um, the BMW dealership that I bought the bike from, um, I paid them to teach me how to do things like uh, the valve clearances and how to change the oil and the, the filters and those sorts of things. So I had basic knowledge. And um, as far as tyre changing was concerned, well, I'd got a bicycle, so I knew I could change a tyre. I just had no idea how different it was going to be. But, do, you, uh, do, you, do you feel now that um, you know every inch of this motorcycle back to front, you know, given the, the, the miles that you've done? I'm not sure how many miles it, it, she has done, but do you feel that you could, you know, you've stripped her down so many times and rebuilt and, and changed so many parts and maybe done so many bodges that actually you've got now, you've got complete confidence in, in Libby and your ability to keep her going? She's got 278,000 miles on her now, 200,000 of which was on the eight-year trip. She's still my only means of transport, and I am still uh, a bit of a mechanical idiot. Um, this bike has been so reliable that there's an awful lot of things that have never been opened up on her and never replaced and never repaired. And people are gobsmacked when I say that the gearbox wasn't rebuilt until 250,000 miles. Amazing. Would you ever consider selling her? Oh, no way. Absolutely not. She's an old friend now. Um, just so much fun and so many memories we've got together. And she's still absolutely brilliant to ride. 
And so many people looking for an eyes, eh? Well, the value of them has gone up because people are realising how much value those bikes have got, as in how much fun they are. Now, apparently you never planned on writing a book after your travels, but in the end you wrote four. Are you glad you, you wrote them? What, what motivated you to do that? Well, do you know, I, I went on this trip just for the adventure. I wanted new challenges and the world is a wonderful place and I, I knew it and I had full-on curiosity. Um, I, I wrote a journal every day because I'm very conscious from previous trips that when you're travelling, you're literally on intake overload. I always think of it as being a little bit like you've got this huge funnel strapped to your forehead, the narrow end going straight into your head. And you're just ramming information in all day, every day. But it's so easy to forget the details. I mean, do you remember what you were doing this time two weeks ago? And do you remember how it smelled? Do you remember the expression on somebody's face? Do you remember exactly what they said? All of those sorts of things. And you could just forget them so quickly. So I wrote a journal and I would never have been able to write the books without the journals because I think that it's those details that bring a story to life. I actually started writing the books as a result of writing magazine articles. I was stuck in Delhi in India for three months trying to get a visa to get into Iran. And uh, a girl on the site there one, one night, because we were all swapping stories, and she said, Sam, so many mad things happened to you. You should, you should write some articles. And I thought, well, I've never tried before. If I don't try, then I won't find out if I can. So I sat and wrote three articles and sent them off to magazines in the UK. Um, and this is all by post back then, no emails or anything. Anyway, Motorcycle Sport and Leisure got back to me and um, said, yeah, we'll take them all and um, keep sending them to us as you travel. So I very gently did over the, the next years. Um, so in other words, when writing an article was something that I had something to talk about and wasn't getting in the way of the journey, then I would send an article off. And when I got back to the UK, uh, Peter Henshaw, who was the editor, said, Sam, we're getting letters and emails from people saying they like your articles. They want to know when your book's coming out. Well, what book? And I thought, well, OK, look, if you don't try, you won't find out if you can. It's, it's another adventure. And I did want to share the stories because so many people were saying, you're lucky. I can't go. I've got responsibilities. So by writing a book, I thought, well, you know, I can share the reality of the road, the fascination, the fun, the challenges, the stuff that happens, the things that go wrong and how you deal with them and all those sorts of things. And it took me two years to write my first book into Africa. Um, during the daytime, I was working renovating um, semi-derelict houses. I didn't even know how to use a computer. So Birgit, my partner, was teaching me how to use a computer at the same time was writing uh, i wrote a chapter once and i loved this chapter i was so proud of it and then somehow pressed delete instead of save and i hadn't saved the whole thing and i lost it and could i rewrite that chapter no i couldn't because i put my heart and soul in it but let's put it this way i learned the lesson brilliant and now um, and now that you've uh, you're four books in and you've you've had a, an amazing sort of a relationship with your readers as a result of feedback people who've read those books, is, is that what makes it all worthwhile for you? Do you know, I still feel amazed when somebody sends me positive feedback. And I think the day that I stop feeling amazed by it, then I, that's the day that I've become arrogant and I hope I never get there. I love the connection with readers around the world. And I, I love the feeling when somebody gets back in touch with me to say that they've enjoyed one of my books 
I, I really like the feeling that I haven't wasted that part of somebody's life, the, the time that they've spent reading it. And when I get a comment from somebody who says, um, I, actually, this is a genuine bit of feedback. A chap wrote me um, an email uh, from Africa. He was traveling down through Africa and he wrote me an email and he said, Dear Sam, I wanted to say thank you for, for your book. I thought if an idiot like you could do it, so could I. And I'm sending you this from Nairobi. And I just thought, fantastic. That's what it should be all about. Absolutely. That's brilliant. And do you get the same feeling when you're doing the talks and the presentations? You know, when, when your audience, when you, perhaps when you take questions at the end and, and you maybe find somebody who say, well, you've inspired me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take those first steps. Watch this space. Standing up on stage is uh, not a natural habitat for me. I'm very nervous before I get up there. But once the storytelling's happening and you can see that you've got an audience who are interested in, in what you're sharing, then things start to roll. But one of the best bits is the question and answers at the end, because then you are answering the things that people really want to know about. And the questions that I get, it's just fantastic. Um, I've actually done some presentations in schools. And what brilliant fun they are. You know, eight and nine-year-old kids asking how many tyres you used and what sort of oil do you, did you use and did you find it difficult to get it and all of those sorts of things. Um, yeah, no, it is, the, doing the presentations is, is a lot of fun. Now, actually being on the road, in your experience, do you believe that across the world, because you talked about people sharing things and wanting the same things do you believe that they they really do just when it comes to security family friends do you think that's the most important across the globe without doubt and this is one of the things that travel reinforces time and time again and you learn things like the smile is an international language and that if you treat people with respect and their environment with respect then you get it back in bucket loads um you do meet some people that are having a bad day and you meet some people who are desperate and doing dodgy things as a result of that. And of course, some, just as they are here, uh, are led by the hunt for, for greed and power. Um, but the greater percentage of the, of the people that I come across are absolutely fabulous and they have the same priorities in life that anybody who's in a stay-in-one-place mostly type of life has. And um, yeah, travel teaches you that. It really reinforces it. And what opportunities would you... Mm. Besides the opportunity to explore six continents and all of the other trips, I suppose it's getting to... Uh, places like Mount Fitzroy on the border between Argentina and Chile. What a phenomenal place. The Carretera Austral. It's one of the most remote roads in the world. It runs down through southern Chile. It's, it's mostly a dirt road. And it's like riding through um, prehistoric times with the vegetation and so on. And it's a challenging road, but it's one of the most beautiful roads that I've ever ridden. I suppose it's also that travel has given me the opportunity to laugh with people. I had one situation with a, a policeman in Kenya. And uh, he was at a roadblock and he pulled me over and he was dressed immaculately and he was pompous and abrupt and and I thought oh no here we go the hand's going to come out for a bribe and all of the rest of this and they were really nasty and negative and the questions that he was hammering at me were really abrupt but then after a minute the smile went beaming across his face and he just said don't worry mister 
I stopped you because I saw you go through my border, my checkpoint on the town yesterday. And I thought today I would stop you to say hello. I love motorcycles. And he was just purring as he was talking about the bike. And I offered him a ride on the back of the bike and we blatted down the road for, I don't know, 50 kilometers, something like that, and back again. And I could hear him laughing. And when he got off the bike at the other end, he just the, the bounce in his stride. And you thought, yeah, this is one of the fun things about travel. It's the laughter. And one of the fun things about travelling by motorcycle is being able to share it. And you've also got travelling to thank for meeting your partner, Birgit, of course. What a life-changing moment that was. I wasn't looking for a girlfriend. Uh, you know, it's the chances of meeting another experienced traveller with an open mind, with determination, a sense of humour that curiosity thing that I keep mentioning and a willingness to go from the flow. I, I just didn't expect that that was going to happen at all. And Birgit and I bumped into each other in New Zealand and well, everybody who's in a relationship that they want to be in will know that they'll remember that moment where you just sort of double take and think, Oh, and that kind of happened with us. And Birgit came on the back of my bike in India and Nepal for three months. And she was just brilliant fun to travel with. And at the end of that, I said, look, I'm going to South America. Would you like to come with me? And she said, yeah, but on two conditions. I want to go to Africa first. And I thought, yeah, okay, I don't mind going back to Africa. And the second condition was that she wanted to ride her own bike. And I thought, wow, yeah, fantastic. Um, that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and is it a slash five that she's got? Yeah, it's a 1971 R60 slash five. Has it turned out to be a good bike for her, though? In many ways it was. With hindsight, though, it was a hard bike for her to ride. We did change the suspension on it, but uh, what we didn't realise was that it was the short wheelbase version, and that meant it bounced around a lot on the dirt roads. Just the the two or three inches of the longer wheelbase uh, version made uh, quite a bit of a difference. The drum brakes weren't brilliant. Uh, Birgit was a really plucky lass to ride this bike, uh, in all of the places that she did. And I'll tell you what, I didn't realise how good my R80GS was to ride in comparison. Um, yeah, I love my bike. But I'll tell you what, she's never going to sell that bike. She's, again, got so many memories that have happened with it. Absolutely. Now, you've travelled solo quite a lot, but you've also, you know, travelled with um, with Birgit and with other people. Do you have a preference in terms of, um, you know, the riding experience? Do you prefer to be with somebody most of the time? Both have their advantages. I think what won me over to uh, travelling together with somebody that you really like and know that you get on well with was the opportunity to share. And solo travel, you can become a bit selfish. I sometimes thought that I was a bit of a two-wheeled hermit because I could do exactly what I wanted to whenever I wanted to. The advantages of solo travel is that you're, you're open to every opportunity, you're open to people. People tend to approach a solo traveller more than they do two people or three people because they're sort of um, a self-contained unit. Mm. So when you're solo travelling, you're infinitely more approachable. And the other advantage is that you can be completely flexible and the only compromises you have to make are to the weather, to the amount of cash you've got and, of course, to the length of the visa. The downsides of solo travel are that it's really pretty much up to you to do absolutely everything. And if you're feeling down, you've got no one that you can share with to maybe bring you up again. And equally, if you're feeling absolutely up and buzzing, there's no one to share those with. But with um, duo travel, 
you've got double the opportunities because you've got two brains, two sets of experiences, two knowledges, two sets of ambitions um, within the journey. And that means that you're just doubling up on the possibilities. And of course, you've got the equal sharing of the duties, such as the planning and the maintenance and the shopping and the route um, design and the sites that you individually want to go and see and so on. So, yeah, I really like traveling um, with uh, Birgit. I'm, I'm lucky she's just such a great person to travel with. Yeah. And I think um, from from reading your books over the years, you're certainly a real optimist yourself. And it's good to share that optimism with someone. I guess I'd call you a glass half full kind of guy. Um, do you think a lot of people do worry? You know, I'm talking about people who aren't on the road, but people who are just getting through everyday life, but worry about insignificant things. Yeah, I kind of do. You've you've got to be a glass half full type of person because things in life do turn against you. It's a reality. And I'm a great believer in silver linings. And I think that they, I mean, in my life experience, they always happen if you keep yourself open enough, open enough and you're prepared to be patient. I had a 17-bone fracture accident crossing the desert in Namibia. The silver linings, and it wasn't just one, it was... For example, the knowledge of how the situation was in hospitals at a dire time politically in Namibia, I would never have learnt about those things. I would have never met some pretty amazing people, such as uh, a man who lived in a mud hut on the edge of the desert who made things out of fiberglass, and he repaired all of the broken plastic panels on my bike. What a fantastic guy. Wow. Um, you know, all of those sorts of things happen if you're open to uh, the silver linings. And I could have been absolutely gutted that this had happened. But I think my attitude was pretty much, well, the bike could be fixed and so could I. It was just going to need a change of plan. One of the things that's always in my mind is why worry about things that you have no control over? Concentrate on the things that you can influence and you actually end up being that much more positive because you're in a positive environment. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, stop worrying about potholes and celebrate the journey. I think that's one of yeah. your quotes, isn't it? Oh, I love that quote. It just means so much, doesn't it? Yeah, of course, be aware of the potholes in the road, but relax about them. Um, things do get in the way, uh, but things ine inevitably go right again. Um, yeah, it's. I, I learned that slaloming on two wheels is fun on one pothole road. It's about having the right state of mind, isn't it? Hmm. What makes you afraid, though, Sam? Actually, not a lot. Um, I fear letting somebody down. I don't know whether that sounds daft or not, but, yeah, I don't like to let people down, and I worry about that. I, I don't ever get actually afraid, but I fear insulting somebody else's culture, and that comes about where I haven't taken enough time out to learn about where I'm going. An example of that is, for example, in, in Vietnam they have quite a lot of uh, cultural aspects that a visitor there should be aware of. Now, in Western society, we quite often touch people on shoulders when we're talking to them, especially when we've got to know them a little bit. Well, in Vietnam, that's a complete no-no, and even many adults believe this. Um, in Vietnam, you, they believe that you have a genie on your shoulder, and if somebody touches you on the shoulder, that genie gets knocked off, and you'll have bad luck for the rest of your life. And so learning those sorts of things, I fear going into somebody else's environment and, and not knowing about those sorts of things. Sure. Uh, what about tough situations? Have you ever found yourself in, um, yeah, crazy situations that maybe you didn't think you were going to get out of? Yeah, lots. Uh, you, you can talk about 
all of the positive things about overlanding, about life in general. But stuff happens, doesn't it? It's a reality. Uh, jail in Tanzania was still the scariest experience of my life, and it's another of those always hair on, on the arm rising moments. That experience is the only time that I remember being truly afraid. What happened there? It's, it's kind of a long story, so I'm not going to tell it all. But a man stepped out in front of me in Malawi, and I was, I was charged with uh, speeding, which was absolutely ridiculous. It was a completely crowded road. I couldn't go fast. Driving without due care and attention, which, again, is completely daft, because when you ride into a, a small African town which is busy in the streets, all the traffic and pedestrians and the dogs and the, the, the goats and the chickens and everything else, you're firing on, on full awareness cylinders. So to be charged of, of not being aware was just crazy. But the third charge was uh, the one that got me thrown in jail, and that was um, attempt to commit grievous bodily harm. They charged me with driving at him um, on purpose. And, yeah, I got thrown in the jail cell, and, yeah, that was a very, very scary experience. But... It was an experience that taught me a lot about who I am because I'd never been that afraid before. And it also taught me that you have to follow your instincts. And when you do that, usually your instincts are right. At this particular time, my instinct was to behave in a completely out of character way and it saved me. Something took over. Yeah, it did. Yeah, absolutely. And if I hadn't behaved in that way, then life could have got um, pretty nasty. So I'm going to let people who've not read the books, uh, where can they find that one? Uh, that's the, the story in uh, my first book, Into Africa. Okay, I'll let people read that to get all the details. Uh, apparently you've been shot at as well. Yeah, a couple of times, fortunately, they missed. <laughs> um, yeah, um, the one time was wrong, t wrong place, wrong time, crossing the border between Sudan and Ethiopia. And we'd literally just been thrown out of Su Sudan. Um, we'd upset a brigadier general by um, stealing his thunder, um, completely unknowing and absolutely innocently. But he was um, a mightily red-faced and fist-shaking in our direction, brigadier general. So, um, yeah, we were asked to leave. And, uh, there was a bit of a tension on the border. Um, the brigadier general had travelled all the way from the capital city, Khartoum, to open a new hospital. And this is a big hospital, so something very special. So lots of celebration and lots of mood and buzz and everything else. And... Uh, the guards on the Sudanese side and the guards on the Ethiopian side, which had just finished a 20-year civil war, um, there was a lot of tension. And they end up popping shots at each other with uh, my friends Mike, Sally and I stuck in the middle of it. But like I said, they missed. So uh, The second time was because um, we did something that was daft. We ran a checkpoint. Uh, we'd been warned very seriously that the police, uh, the soldiers there hadn't been paid for a couple of months and we'd been told that they would just steal everything. And if they'd stolen everything, um, the money that we were carrying, our belongings, etc., etc., that was it, trip over. I was um, a lot younger and a bit more gung-ho in those sorts of situations. And looking back, you know, neither were stupid, but both were risky situations to be in. But like I said, they missed, so um, lucky. What about yourself? Are you, what are you grateful for in life? You've seen a lot, you've done a lot, but when you wake up, what are you most grateful for? Well, how many hours have you got? I am incredibly lucky. Um, let's start with my GS. What a class act. 278,000 miles of an idiot riding her with my home on the back and all those road conditions. Fantastic. I love my bike. What amazing experiences we've been able to have together. I now have an F800 GS as well. 
and that bike is already giving me some some wonderful adventures. I probably should have started off with this um, Birgit. Yeah, of course, I'm incredibly grateful um, that she's my partner. Um, I'm very lucky that our families are both such great people, and then I've been brought up in an environment which has encouraged me to to boundary stretch and to travel. I'm lucky that I've met so many fascinating people over the years. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky that I'm still as fit as I am. I've got a pretty dinged body now, but I'm still able to do so much. You've been very ill in the past, haven't you? But you were one of the people who was fortunate enough to find uh, a match for a kidney transplant that you needed. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when I was thinking about what I have to be grateful for in life, it's such a juggle to put what comes first. But let's put it this way. Without my kidney transplant, um, my new plumbing, as I call it, um, life would be a pretty dire place to be. And I mean, what happened was uh, my kidney started failing. It failed over a very short period of time. I have a, um, one of the rarer blood groups. It's B positive and um, suits my personality perfectly, but it's not much good when you want to have a kidney transplant. But uh, I was very lucky with this, again, because uh, an opportunity came up. And I'm eternally grateful to my organ donor, who is obviously no longer with us, um, and to his family that um, allowed the organ donation to go ahead. And I'm extremely grateful to all of the medical staff that were involved, and of course to my family and Birgit for the support. Because if for all of those people that need an organ donation and, for example, a kidney um, transplant, being on dialysis is not a happy place to be. Um, some people dialyze for seven hours a day, four days a week, and they're absolutely exhausted all of the rest of the time. So they're alive, but it's no life. Um, some people are uh, more lucky than that. They don't need to dialyze quite so often and they can get out and do things still. But for many people, it's it's an absolutely grim situation. So um, if, if you don't mind, I'd just like to say um, a huge thank you to everybody who is on the organ donor list, um, because I think you people are absolutely amazing. Um, if you turn your toes up at some stage, um, just bringing life to so many other people, fantastic. Uh, I was told that my organ donor um, either saved the lives or, or made lives better of seven people. That's incredible, isn't it? And I, I completely agree with you. What would you say you've learned from your illness and your recovery, of course? That being positive is really important. You have to keep focused on the things that you can do and not concentrate on the things that you can't do. If you concentrate on the things that you can't do, then you're going to spiral yourself down into some sort of horrible depression. But if you focus on the things that you can do, then you've got a chance of, even when life is dire, of having some modicum of, of happy time. And that, yeah, that's so important. Being patient is also really important. When you suddenly lose all the energy that you've got, it would be so easy to get frustrated. Um, but well, what's the point? It is the way it is, so make the best of the situation that you've got. Yeah, you don't need a lot of cash to have a good life, do you? No, you don't. No, you don't. Actually, what you need to have is um, your good health, and you need to be able to make the time to see and to value. What about the, um, the world since that first trip, since you started or since you finished the first trip? Do you, how do you think the world has changed? 
It's changed quite a lot. In some ways, it's changed for the better. There are better roads in many places. There are more hospitals, better education in many places. There's more water for people, um, those sorts of things. But, of course, they all need so much more work in so many different parts of the world. There's more paperwork when you're traveling. That's not necessarily such a good thing. There's better tech, so there are way more opportunities. And for a while, I started to feel a little bit negative about the, um, the things that better tech do, as in it's that much more easy for um, travelers to post about the amazing places that they get to. And that means that there are less places uh, that you can randomly discover. But then I started thinking, Sam, what an idiot you are. Here you are encouraging people to go out and travel and explore and see the amazing things, and you're being negative about something that gives the opportunity to do that. So I very quickly wound my neck in. One of the changes that is negative about tech is that it's that much harder to cut the umbilical cord from home. People seem to be able to, or seem to need, feel the need to stay in touch with what's going on. And when I was on the big trip, um, I would go quite often for two months without any contact with anybody at home. And my parents, they knew that if something was wrong, then I would get in touch. And if they didn't hear from me, then it was fine. And normally I'd be writing to them every six weeks or so. But this business about Skyping and WhatsApping and all of the rest of it every day, and then if your parents don't hear from you for two days, then the panic stations are happening. I think that that's actually stifling for um, the things that were there before in that you could you didn't have that. So if an opportunity came up, you'd just take it and you'd go because there was nothing to stop you doing it. Yeah, and, it, and it's a wonderful feeling to be in the middle of nowhere, completely out of touch with the world. It's something that, that most people will never get to experience, but certainly something mm -hmm. I can highly recommend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, too right. Does it upset you when you watch the news these days? Do you feel like there's still a lot of misreporting? Yes, there is. Uh, I, I, I do get angry about the misreporting. I get angry that the unscrupulous elements of the media say things like, we report what people want to hear. And I think, what tosh is that? They've taught themselves that. Actually, I think most people are intelligent and curious and they want to have proper reporting. They want the full story. Well, in almost all the places in the world that, that I've been, and, and you'll hopefully you'll back me up on this, people are kind, generous and want to help you. All over the place. And that's one of the, the finest things about travel. It's getting involved with the people. Um, it's breaking down the barriers. It's, it's getting involved. It's opening yourself up to the possibilities, the things that people can, um, can offer you and the things that you can offer people in return. For example, in India, I know some people get completely racked off because India is quite in your face. There's not an awful lot of body space. But if somebody asks me a question, then I take the time to answer the question. I like to think that if something, somebody unusual comes through my home environment, I would be brave enough to go and ask them a question that I wanted to know the answer to out of curiosity. And so, yeah, um, sometimes I've stood and had three-hour conversations just purely and simply because we've ended up with a crowd of curious people and they're brave enough to ask. And it's, it's that sharing back. Um, but some, some of the things that, that have happened over the years, just simply amazing because of people's kindness and their willing to go, willingness to go the extra mile. 
kindness of strangers. You could say that to any uh, adventure motorcyclist and get a a whole podcast from each of them, couldn't you? You know. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. Um, I can sit here and I can talk for a couple of hours just about all of the different types of kindness that there have been. Yeah. So what would your advice be to a young you now? Go and do it. Um, you might like to learn how not to fall off a motorcycle quite so much, though. Oh, and I was so inexperienced, I did fall off a lot. Um, keep on focusing on thinking why not instead of I can't. Know that fear is a good thing. It means that all of your senses are firing on all cylinders. And if you do that, then you use it as a tour, uh, as a tool to get you into adventuring, but adventuring respectfully. Wake up to each day as if it's a unique thing. And if you do that, then it will be. I think that every day is full of opportunities. And after a while, when you're traveling, you run the risk of coming a little bit travel blind and you forget so you end up um, thinking about going from A to B instead of all of the things that happen in between. You remember I mentioned that when I was talking about uh, riding the bicycle on that first trip. It's what happens during the day that has more value than actually making it somewhere. So always remember that. Stopping often. Always remember to stop. Because it's when, every time you stop and you get off your bike, regardless of where it is, you're standing looking at the view you're hearing the sounds all of a sudden because you're not just hearing the wind noise in your helmet and the sound of your engine. You're hearing the sounds of where you are. You're smelling the smells. You're feeling the temperature, etc. And all of those sorts of things from those regular stops add real quality to your journey. Enjoy getting lost. Don't be afraid of getting lost. Actually, many of the best adventures happen when you were on a road that you didn't expect to be on. Trust is an excellent thing. Um, I still travel now trusting people first until they prove to me that they can't be trusted i mean of course there are some situations where your senses are just saying no way don't trust this person they're really dodgy character well of course you pay attention to that but most of the time trusting first it opens up all sorts of opportunities to you keep on writing your journal because you're on intake overload and you'll regret it if you don't and even if it's only writing 20 key words because you're too tired or you've or things have just happened, uh, just write 20 key words, that's enough. Um, if you don't have the time to talk to the locals, then you're travelling too quickly, and that means that you're not maxing out the possibilities of your journey. But your bike is your best friend, so, so treat it as such. Um, and don't buy so much stuff. You really do need a minimal amount of gear. And one of the things that I did learn on, on the trip was, um, and I wish I'd known to begin with, was the two uses rule. And what I mean by that is everything that you take, where at all possible, has to have two uses. Now, an example of that is your ground sheet. Buy um, a ground sheet that's under, for underneath your tent, so it protects your tent. It helps you, your tents stop have sharp stones and thorns and things like that going into the, into the, uh, the, the bathtub uh, waterproof layer. But also you can use a non-crinkly ground sheet on a bed in a dodgy hotel where there are signs of bed bugs and so on. Um, or where the sheets and so on are incredibly dirty. And um, yeah, I've stayed in a few places like that. So, you know, those sorts of things. So much good advice there. I, I really wish uh, we'd spoken before I set off on my trip. Yeah, but what an amazing thing that you managed to make your trip happen. Yeah. Fantastic. And, you know, making mistakes along the way is is just... <laughs> You know, it's one of the best things you can do in terms of having an adventure. But just before I finish, Sam, I just wanted to say that actually, and you're probably the wrong person to ask this question to, but in my opinion, you don't actually need to go 
that far to have an adventure, do you? Oh, I totally agree. Absolutely. Um, There are all sorts of discussions over what the word adventure actually means. And I think over the last couple of decades, the word adventure has changed quite a lot. I think adventure 20 years ago was more like um, an expedition to the South Pole or something like that. That was adventure. Driving a a classic car in the 1920s, the length of Africa, um, that was an adventure. Uh, But I think the use of a word of adventure has become a much more positive thing. And people are much more prepared to think, actually, I can have an adventure. And for me, the criteria of adventure is anything that you do that stretches you, anything that you do where you're learning new things, and anything that you do that makes you feel fully alive. And that can start happening at the end of your drive. I I met a, a young lad and he was buzzing. He was going on his first adventure. He was going to, to ride his motorcycle to Scotland. And he was just so excited. And he was excited for all of the reading, all the, all the right reasons. Um, and an old salt said, no, oh, that's not an adventure. You're still in your own country. Well, he was wrong for starters, wasn't he? He's was still in the UK, but Scotland, Scotland. But how wrong was that? Because all of the adventure boxes, the challenges, the new things, everything was going to be ticked by this young lad on his new adventure. And yeah, what a fantastic thing adventure is. Brilliant. Well, listen, before we go, I just wanted to ask you five or six quick fire questions, if that's okay, um, Mm, because I'm interested interested to see what your response is on these. So I'll just shoot. So how important is the feeling of freedom in your life? Vital. Uh, I can be caged for a while, but it's not my natural habitat. Give me some important top tips for budding overlanders. Learn before you go. Uh, Don't overplan. Aim to travel slowly. Go out aiming to explore and not tick boxes. And that's something that worries me a lot about um, many people who travel now. Um, Cut the umbilical umbilical cord from home. Make yourself distant. How has motorcycle adventure travel changed you? I think I understand what true freedom is. And I understand the value of taking advantage of opportunities because my motorcycle has allowed me to do those things. Okay, so we enjoy reading your travel books, but which travel writers do you enjoy reading? My favourite motorcycle travel book is by Robert Fulton, um, One Man Caravan. Simple Times, it's a true grit story with just great descriptions. But I have never read a travel book that I haven't learned from and been entertained by. Uh, My bookshelves are just full of travel books. Now, you travelled a long time before GPS, the internet and smartphones made finding your way, asking for help or finding a room for the night a much easier task than it is today. But do you still prefer the old school way? I really like my GPS, but it stays off most of the time. I love maps, um, in part because they tell you where you are, but also because they tell you what you're surrounded by. GPS is very handy unless you let it give you tunnel vision. Uh, And the other thing I I do like about a GPS is it gives you the confidence to get lost. Elspeth Beard and I were talking about that not so long back, and we were saying, actually, you can just hang a left and just go wherever the road wants to take you, and as time starts to draw in a little bit, you can plug your GPS in and uh, get you um, pulled back onto track again. And what are the best and worst jobs you've done in order to fund your travels? (laughs) Um, Article writing's the best. I did a a series of jobs uh, in um, Greece. Um, They were brilliant fun. I was working on the beach during the daytime, selling ice creams and slices of watermelon and that sort of thing. I was in the evening. I was working on uh, waiting on tables. 
which was a manic job, full bore hard work. And then straight after that, I was straight into being uh, a DJ in the disco. So I wasn't getting very much sleep, but I, I had an absolute buzz doing it and I earned enough money to, to buy a ticket to fly to Australia. And then the next one, I guess, was, yeah, uh, arriving Australia. I worked in the Yacht Marina in Sydney Harbour, which was brilliant fun. And I guess probably the next best one would be working on a, a film crew in Darwin. The worst? Painting offices in Uganda. The paint there is so thin that it took seven coats of paint. And, oh, mate, I knew every single corner of those rooms as if I'd lived in there for a lifetime. Um, I think probably the next worst job was um, cleaning sewers in Greece. It's, um, it's a pretty whiffy job. I'm sure it is. I, I don't want to go there. So listen, Sam, it's been fantastic talking to you. I'm sure you've inspired lots of people listening to, uh, you know, plan their own adventures and certainly start thinking about it. But if people want to find you, where can they do that online? They can find me uh, on my website, which is sam-manicum.com. They can find me on Facebook in two places, Sam Manicum. And the other page is Adventure Motorcycle Travel Books by Sam Manicum. I'm also on Twitter, which is at Sam Manicum with a capital S and a capital M. And I'm on Instagram, which is sammanicum.author. Can I just say one thing? Go ahead. If anybody is planning to go out and do a journey, write your journal every day. And when you come back, share the fun, share the things that you've learned, write articles, write a book, do presentations. Just share the fun of how amazing this world is. You can do nothing better from your journey. Couldn't agree with you more, Sam. Thanks ever so much for talking to us at Ride and Talk. It's been a real pleasure for me, and I hope we see each other on the road again soon in, uh, in happier times. That would be fantastic, Andy. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for all your insights there, Sam. It's always a pleasure. Let's hope we meet up in person soon, either at one of your presentations, book signings or adventure travel meets. Well, that's it from Sam and myself for now. You'll be pleased to know that another stalwart of adventure will be joining us on the next ride and talk. Her name is Tiffany Coates and she's from nowhere. Intrigued? You should be. Subscribe now and we'll deliver it directly to you. Bye for now.